A jury finds the NRA didn't safeguard its charitable assets and Wayne LaPierre is liable for millions in damages. Plus, an interview with the lawyer on a California gun case that signals the Ninth Circuit may be changing course. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. No, the devil's got no All right. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also a CNN contributor and the founder of TheReload.com, where you can head over and sign up for our free newsletter today if you want to keep up to date with what's going on with guns in America. Of course, you can also buy a membership if you want to support this sort of independent, informed reporting that we do from a sober, serious perspective. You will, of course, get access to hundreds of pieces of analysis that you will not find anywhere else. And, uh, you know, you'll get the opportunity to listen to the show a day early and appear on it if you would like to in a member segment. This week, we're doing things a little bit differently. I have an interview that we uh, did previously with uh, one of the, the lawyers, the lead lawyer in a California uh, gun rights suit, and we will get to that. But first, we have much bigger news that came out right at Closing time on Friday, as these things tend to do, because the NRA jury has come in and juries, I think, are sort of somewhat notorious for not wanting to go through the weekend if they don't have to. And so we got a verdict right at closing time on Friday in the NRA case. To talk about that a little bit, we're going to start off the show with contributing writer Jake Bogleman. How are you doing today, Jake? Uh, good. Yeah. Like you said, kind of big news happening right, right at the tail end of the day here, right before the weekend, uh, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. excited to dive into it. Yeah, absolutely. And so the big news is that the National Rifle Association was found to have not safeguarded their charitable assets by this jury in New York. Um, and former, at this point, former, CEO Wayne LaPierre, longtime head and face of the organization, uh, was found to have harmed the NRA and its members by diverting $5.4 million worth of uh, charity funds towards his own uh, personal expenses. So that's kind of, those are kind of the big takeaways. We'll get into some of the other things that came out as well. It wasn't a total, uh, down the line verdict here uh, on all charges against all defendants, but kind of the big top line tickets were firmly against uh, the NRA. Yeah, absolutely. Like you said, that's sort of the big, the big news. What I think people that are more casually following this trial were watching closely was obviously what happens to the NRA as a whole and what happens to its longtime face, Wayne LaPierre. And as sort of your coverage of this trial tended to indicate just based on the facts and the way the case uh, played out in court. This seemed to be kind of the likely outcome that we all expected, just uh, the way the facts laid out, the way the testimony went, the way closing arguments went. It just seemed like this was going to be the likely outcome. And sure enough, we have a, a, a huge ruling against quite literally the largest gun rights organization in the country. Yeah, absolutely. Now, and I think it's it's a very consequential one. There are a couple of things here or there that we'll discuss as far as um, the, the specifics is some of the rulings, especially against the other individual plaintiffs or de sorry defendants, uh, besides Lapierre, that we can get we'll get into. But the 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 things that really matter for the future of the NRA, um, those all I think went uh, basically against the organization and its current leadership, current and former leadership. 
you know, to the point where there's still now a live possibility that Judge Joel Cohen, who is overseeing this case, will appoint a monitor, uh, somebody who was going to be in charge of overseeing the NRA and how it functions and could have a great deal of power to affect its internal operations, uh, how it spends money, who how it's organized, you know, the, the bylaws um, and, and who its leadership are, right? That, that's, I think, the really big takeaway from, from this verdict. Uh, these things have not been determined yet. That's another important point. This, the jury is doing the fact-finding in this case. They aren't handing down an actual uh, punishment or ruling, you know, in the sense that um, they're not saying that uh, there will be a court-appointed monitor or that William LaPierre will pay back this money. They're saying that the NRA didn't properly manage its its funds and that it didn't have, for instance, a proper whistleblower uh, policy and that it retaliated or allowed retaliation against uh, at least eight different whistleblowers in in this case, um, including a lot of you know former board members and, and NRA employees, uh, and that uh, Wayne LaPierre's diversion of funds was, and, and these were largely associated with the private jet flights, uh, that those were, uh, th- that they harmed the organization in a monetary way. And uh, to $5.4 million worth of monetary harm is what the jury determined. It's not exactly clear how they came to that number specifically. I think it was accused by the AG of somewhere closer to $11 million. Um, so they, they kind of cut that in half, it looks like. Um, and then they also determined that he paid back a million. So he's more on the hook for, I think, about 4.3. Former treasurer Woody Phillips is also going on the hook for about a million dollars, it looks like, uh, as well. So, um, yeah, the former executives are going to potentially be ordered to pay money back, but that hasn't happened yet. That's uh, that's where the judge uh, will come in. There will be another phase of this trial, which will determine what the actual um, remedies are going to be, uh, but they're probably going to line up pretty closely with what the jury has found, I would imagine. Yeah, no, absolutely. And like you said, there's sort of the two components of what the, the political fallout of this will be. One is the to-be-determined uh, damages that will be assigned to the group or its members, whether or not, obviously, LaPierre has already reti- stepped down from the NRA, but whether or not the other uh, co-defendants will be barred from the organization, um, whether or not there's a monitor that will uh, deal with you know, how the NRA operates going forward. And then two, just, I think the political fallout of just having a corruption verdict go against your organization that just reputationally, what does that do for gun owners and potential future members that maybe would have uh, donated to the NRA and become NRA members that now say, well, you know, it's a organization that was found by a a jury to be a corrupt organization, or at least was corruptly run for, for a time. Um, What does that do to the future of the the largest gun rights organization in the country? So a lot up in the air right now. I think that's a really valid point. What we do know a little bit about uh, as far as at least what the jury has found cause for in terms of barring people from working with the NRA. Um, and that is that the, the Wayne LaPierre, they found cause in the evidence to bar him from working with the NRA in the future. Uh, but even though they found uh, John Frazier, who's the NRA's top lawyer, he's the general counsel, uh, although he previously testified he was out of the loop on a lot of its major sort of legal decisions over the last several years, like whether to file bankruptcy, um, things things like that, or Wayne LaPierre's uh, salary negotiations, a lot of these sort of high-level 
decision making. He wasn't really involved in that stuff. But they they interestingly found him. Uh, they found that he lied or, or presented materially false information on uh, government forms. I think it was related to well the related party transactions, which they also will dive into that a little bit too. Um, but they they also found there wasn't cause to remove him from his position. So uh, I, as far as I understand it, that means he can't be removed by the judge, I, I don't think. So, um, I mean, he could be removed perhaps by the NRA uh, after, the, after this. It'll be fascinating to see what happens to the organization. Because like you said, I think it's, it's a, huge, a huge PR nightmare for them. Uh, I mean, it's part of an ongoing one though, right? Like this is, this has been a PR nightmare for them for years now. It's been five years since these things, really closer to six years, because the first story was the Wall Street Journal in 2018. But the first big blow up internally was came in 2019. And, you know, they've lost millions of members. We're not even sure how many they have, right? Um, some board members say it's 3.8, where one board member says that mostly, another board member Buzz Mills says it's less than, around 3 million, maybe less than 3 million. The NRA says it's not less than 3 million, but they won't say, at least their official spokespeople won't say what they think the number is. But it's clearly far lower than it was back, uh, you know, just five, six years ago uh, by, by millions and millions, or you know, likely more than more than a million at the very least. So it's the, they've already had this detrimental effect um, and presumably this only makes it worse from there. And yeah, I mean, can they even come back? That was one of the member pieces I wrote recently, regardless of this outcome. Um, it's been so long since this came out. And I think a lot of people, not everyone, obviously, there, there are defenders of the current leadership, especially inside of the NRA and on the board. But there are a lot of people who are deeply critical of the people who have uh, gotten the NRA into this mess. I mean, it's all this very similar makeup now as it was uh, in terms of the, the most important positions in the NRA uh, as it was back in 2018, 2019. Charles Cotton is the president. He was the head of the audit committee back when they were approving a lot of the uh, transactions at issue in, in this case. Um, you know, Andrew Ulanundum is the current executive vice president. He replaced Wayne. He was sort of Wayne's right-hand man for decades inside the organization. Uh, you know, the, these there hasn't been a lot of internal change to people that run the organization. And all the people, they put together a committee um, that is supposed to look for the new permanent EVP, and it is filled with people who have been on the NRA board for very long time who were in top positions during all of this, uh, all the, these corruption uh, allegations surfaced. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if, even if the monitor comes in and replaces everyone or the, these people who are there currently resign or, or what have you, if they get a wholly new organization, um, they're probably still going to have a lot of trouble convincing people to come back uh, and to, to trust them with their donations again. Yeah, absolutely. And that that in and of itself has significant implications in the political space, not only because one, 2024, when this is happening, is obviously a big election year. Uh, we reported last week about 
uh, Trump's cozy relationship with the NRA, them having him speak yep. at their outdoor show. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it's one thing to have him speak, but it, it doesn't seem like they at least will have the same financial capabilities that they have, have had in years past to contribute to his campaign or to contribute to other down ballot races that are going to be important for who controls the House and the Senate in the upcoming races. Um, you know, and then going forward, whether or not they can continue to, to lobby, obviously their lobbying for, uh, capability has been significantly diminished over the last several years, as we've reported in exclusive documents that we've obtained, just all of their money has seems to be going to legal fees in this ongoing corruption scandal. And if you can't, you know, once it's, you put it past you and if you can't regain the trust of members or court new members to support your organization, you know, where do you even go from there? It's, uh, it's, yeah. it's going to be a big deal. Yeah. I mean, we, we just had a story on their fundraising headed into 2024 where they had about 11 million dollars between their pack and super pack uh, and i actually just looked at their uh, february 20th disclosures and the number has not really changed very much to be honest i think it's gone up very slightly um but they're still in the 11 million dollar range um now interestingly even with all this they're still ahead of the gun control groups not by a lot uh, but if you combine you know giffords every town and brady they, they have somewhere around 10, 10 and a half million. Uh, they're getting, you know, they're getting somewhere close to the NRA, but they're still behind them. Uh, but the NRA spent for context about $30 million, just under $30 million in 2020 on the election. And they spent uh, about $50 million in 2016. So uh, being at $11 million in going into February, 2024, they have a lot of, a lot of room, a lot of space to make up in that in that race uh, to get back to the where they were in 2020 when the candidate they back lost. So, and yeah, this is happening in the middle of that. Now, you know, one of the things I think you kind of mentioned there is just getting through this is probably going to be a positive thing. It's you know, getting to the other side, whatever the other side looks like, should help them to some degree. But these are going to, I'd imagine, there's going to be lingering effects from this for years. Uh, if not forever. I mean, we looked at um, Susan G. Komen, Race for the Cure, and uh, a big blow up that they had that also involved the face of the organization and questions about their spending. And they've never reverted back to where they had been before that happened uh, in the years that followed. Um, There's the Wounded Warrior Project had a, a similar issue where they had excessive spending at the executive level that created a scandal. Um, but they, they address that much more quickly than Komen or especially the NRA. I think it was a couple months after the news broke, they had wiped clean the top of their organization and they were able to recapture their fundraising efforts. It took years though, for, uh, for them, I think it was four or five years before they got back to where they had been. Um, so those are some of the examples that, uh, that I wrote about previously, but yeah, it's going to be a slog, uh, even under whatever you, whatever you think, you know, whatever the individual looking at this situation thinks is the best path forward, it's even if you get your ideal path, it's going to be hard. Um, and so, you know, I will say, I mean, I, I think there's, it's hard to argue that the path they've gone down the last five years has worked out well. It, it resulted in a bankruptcy that didn't even actually accomplish the thing that they were hoping to. And then um, they are here now with this verdict where the 
the jury found they were um they weren't protecting their charitable funds i mean that's that's a hard sell to to a donor right it, even if you wipe clean the organization and start fresh this is always going to be out there um it's a real it's a real problem and you know i think people underestimate how important it is right because people look at the other gun rights groups and some of them have grown certainly in the wake of this but none of them have grown to the point where even collectively they make up the amount of funds that the NRA has lost during that time period uh, and the effectiveness it has. And a lot of them aren't trying to replicate a number of the things the NRA does uh, at the national state lobbying level or whether it's or even things like gun safety training, which they're they're still the largest group in the country that, for that. Um, so, you know, there's there's a lot. It's, it's going to be a long slog to get back to where they were if they ever can. Yeah, no, I think that's an important point. There's a, a lot of balls in the air, but I think, you know, either way it goes, like you said, no matter what course they decide to take, the remaining leadership decides to take, it's going to it's gonna be a, a, a landscape altering next few years in gun politics, uh, for example, when the big, the big dog is sort of not, not where it used to be. And like you said, the other groups are doing a lot of work and are making headlines, especially in the courts, but don't have anywhere near the capability to just come in and replace the NRA. No. So where, where, where does it go from here? Where does the gun rights side of the ledger go from here? Yeah. And, you know, this was one of the complaints that the NRA tried to raise in this case. One of the defenses was that uh, this is kind of the outcome, uh, one of the outcomes that Letitia James, the Democratic AG from New York, was hoping for. She's uh, clearly a political opponent of the NRA. She, while she was running for AG, said that she uh, thought they were not a charity, but a domestic terror organization. Um, clear bias against the group. She initially was trying to dissolve them outright, to shut them down, uh, which, which I think uh, if you look back at the coverage of that at the time, a lot of people from across the political spectrum were concerned about that. You know, the, an AG using her governmental power to shut down one of her political opponents. Now, the judge removed that option from this case, and he also removed the defense of complaining of the AG's bias from the from the NRA. Like it wasn't a viable defense in court against these allegations of corruption. Uh, it didn't last on appeal either. But the NRA did still try to make that case to the jury, oftentimes, uh, as, as they went through, to try and you know get the jury to believe that all of this was uh, unnecessary uh, political attack, essentially, from the attorney general. And um, that you know, in connection with that, it wasn't necessary because the organization had reformed itself, that it had put in safeguards, um, that it had fired some of the bad actors. Uh, now, obviously, the jury didn't buy that. Uh, the jury did not feel that whatever the political motivations of the AJ might be, those were enough to overlook the corruption that that occurred inside the NRA. Um, and they didn't feel clearly that the reforms the current leadership claims to have made were enough to remedy the situation. Right? I mean, that's clear from their their verdict. Um, 
And, and so, uh, but, you know, it's still interesting because if you take away, you step outside of the court and look at the situation, the, this case really did harm them significantly as, as a political entity. They're not now, you know, that's sort of intertwined, of course, with the corruption itself. You know, the exposure of the corruption came from one of their political opponents, right? By filing a case like this, but you know, it's hard to uh, unmingle those two effects because the AG is, I think, fairly clearly politically motivated here. But the people she's, uh, the, the NRA and LaPierre and its uh, leadership gave her a lot of openings to go after them on non-political grounds. And this is where they've ended up, uh, which is uh, not a good place if you're a gun rights advocate. Yep, certainly it's uh, kind of an inopportune time if you are a gun rights advocate, you know, like we said, not only because of the election, but just there's a lot of momentum, I think, on the gun control side as of as of late. Uh, you see it at the state level in particular, where the NRA is pretty much the only lobbying gun rights force other than state groups, right? There's mm -hmm. no other national group really doing state level lobbying. And you're seeing the resurgence of assault weapon bans at the state level. You're seeing all sorts of gun control policies, uh, particularly in, in blue and blue leaning states. And, you know, what happens when you have a, a gun rights group that's no longer able or has the resources to, to get involved in the fight, you know, that could change the political landscape, too. So it's definitely a, yeah. a, a huge ruling uh, with a lot of fallout that were, still remains to be seen. Yeah, I mean, I think on the top lines here, what, which is, did the NRA properly administer its funds? Jury says no. Did Wayne LaPierre harm them by diverting funds toward in his personal expenses, the jury says yes to the tune of $5.4 million. Those are the top line things. Those are the biggest takeaways that everyone's going to look at from the general public. And those are both very negative for the NRA. Uh, but I do want to get into some of the other stuff that we found, because it was a, like I mentioned before, some of it's a little bit uh, of a mixed bag at the, on kind of the tail end, the other charges in this case. Uh, well, first of all, uh, a number of them were removed before we got to this point by the judge who just found that the AG, the AG did not do a, a fantastic job. I don't think it's going to matter much because, again, the top line stuff is what everybody's going to look at. But the AG um, wasn't able to prove a number of things that she accused the NRA of, or at least not uh, within the statute of limitations or within the law, right? Like some of these things might look really bad, like Wayne LaPierre, a lot of the yacht stuff, right? We heard a lot about Wayne LaPierre's travel on yachts with his uh, friends, the McKenzie's, who are also people who do business with the NRA. And, you know, they go on yacht trips and then MMP would get a big bump in uh, the, the McKenzie's company would get a big bump in pay uh, after that. You know, they had some of this circumstantial stuff on this point, which might look really bad to an outsider, but the judge determined wasn't valid charge in the case after they got through the six weeks of trial. So you had a number of things that didn't even make it to this jury, although they still it was still a 17 page long uh, jury sheet that they had to fill out, which is probably why it took them a week to come back. But, um, you know, even on the things that did make it, you had some sort of interesting outcomes, maybe mixed things at the lower level, especially against uh, John Frazier, for instance, I think I mentioned earlier, they found that he uh authorized the material falsehood on a government filing, but they also found, and, you know, but they also found that he, there wasn't cause to remove him from his position. So it's kind of a mixed bag for Frazier. Um, 
who, again, I think is kind of a minor player in all this, given that he wasn't very much in charge of what was going on uh, legally at the NRA, uh, although he his role makes him, you know, liable in these situations. But so kind of a mixed thing there. The same thing for Woody Phillips, the former treasurer who was involved in making a lot of these um, contracts and you know, there was some stuff that came up that didn't even make it into the trial. There's an audio tape of him arranging a scheme with the NRA's former top contractor, Ackerman McQueen, where they were going to issue Ackerman McQueen credit cards to an NRA employee so that they could spend uh, money on on private jets and luxury hotel stays and try to keep those things off of the NRA's books so they didn't have to report them. Uh, you know, that audio tape came out during the trial. It didn't make it into evidence, but they, you know, in that situation, they found that his post-employment contract, he had this like $30,000 a month post-employment contract where it wasn't really clear. It was, it was consulting. It wasn't really clear what he, if anything, did for the NRA for, for that money. But, um, you know, they found that that was an, an inappropriate related party con uh, transaction, but also that it didn't harm the NRA financially. Again, I think, like I mentioned earlier, maybe because it didn't last very long. The next treasurer came in and and canceled it uh, pretty pretty quickly. So that might be why they didn't find a, a huge um, uh, financial burden for there. If I'm if I'm understanding the the it, all this stuff just came out, so we didn't, I don't want to. Uh, hopefully, I'm getting it all right. This is this is how I'm remembering it. If not, well, I'll make sure to to correct this on the next episode, but I, that's, that's how I read it coming down. And same thing for a lot of the related party transactions. You had a lot of part related party transactions, basically where the board, a board member was being paid for something where the, the jury found that these were not approved properly in advance, like they're supposed to be, but they were convinced by the NRA's actions on most of them, uh, where the audit committee had gone through and approved them after the fact, um, which, which is kind of interesting, except for two, which one was uh, Susan LaPierre's hair and makeup, and the other one was, was were speeches given by, or payments for speeches by David Keene. For some reason, they found that one was not appropriately um, retroactively approved, but some of the other speech uh, payments were. I, so it's a little bit mixed there too. Um, I think those things are kind of ancillary to the potential big punishments here, but uh, it's important to understand the full breadth of this ruling. And it's not a, it's not like a total win for the attorney general, but it is, it seems more like a win on the points that everyone's going to care about, to be honest. Yeah, especially Wayne LaPierre, right? He was, yeah. I, I think it's its no surprise that he was sort of the big target in all of this. And even despite the mixed bag down, you know, down the list of potential uh, misdeeds, still $5.4 million of uh, liability to the, the figurehead of, of the world's largest gun rights organization and someone that yeah. obviously the attorney general clearly had it out for. So, Right, right, certainly. Um, I think, that, you know, you go back to that quote that and people have to make up their own minds, right, about this. You know, the audience, listeners, have to make up your own mind whether uh, you feel like her motivations overshadow what what actually LaPierre and, and others at the NRA did or whether what, you know, the, the diversion of funds is uh, 
too much to overlook because they, you know, like uh, I think Cam Edwards, the way he looked at it, because you, you have a lot of people who were current or former NRA who don't don't like the attorney general, but also really don't like what the uh, NRA was doing with this money. Um, and, and Wayne LaPierre in particular, I think Cam Edwards summed that uh, that point of view up by saying that Latricia James was on a witch hunt, but she found witches. Um, so it, it is, but it's, you know, there's nuance. There's a lot of nuance there. This is very similar to what, these Trump prosecutions, right? I think there's a lot of similar arguments over those on either side, uh, including the one that Letitia James is involved with uh, and the Trump uh, Trump company where he, you know, she won that case too. And there's a lot of criticism, uh, very similar sort of conversation as what you're seeing here. Uh, but I think Wayne LaPierre doesn't have quite the, uh, the, the same following as, as Donald Trump. So maybe not to the degree that you're seeing it in the Trump case, but, but there's similar issues at play and they are, uh, they're nuanced. They're complex, I think. And people have to make up their own minds about what they, what they feel about all that. Um, but it's, I think they're all, it's relevant stuff to bring up and to talk about uh, and to discuss in the context of all this, you can't ignore it. Uh, the jury, again, ultimately didn't think that the, those argument, this argument that uh, Letitia James is, is biased was enough to overcome the evidence of corruption. That That's how the jury seems to have come down. Yeah, no, certainly. And we'll, you know, we'll have to keep an eye on what the political fallout continues to be, what, what the reaction is from the general public to this, whether or not they buy those arguments. But like you said, the jury waited through the facts and and this is where they came down on it. So, yeah, and we'll, we'll of course be watching the what Judge Cohen does in the second part of this trial and what he ultimately hands down as as remedy in the case. Um, but yeah, that for now we're gonna uh, hand it on over to myself and uh, to our interview that would normally be the main interview, but uh, we had to just I think it made sense to switch things around a little bit this week because we just got this news and it's. It's big news. So when we get that to you guys first, uh, and then after that, we'll come back for a brief news update as well. This week, we are talking about uh, some pretty interesting shifts in the Ninth Circuit, perhaps, at least one case that has major implications. And to do that, we actually have the the lawyer who is the who is representing the plaintiffs in this case is a case called um, Junior Sports Magazines Inc. v. Bonta. Uh, we covered this a bit earlier uh, when when this law first passed in California, but um, let me bring you an update because there's been some interesting stuff going on. Uh, and to do that, we have uh, Michelle and Associates partner um, Anna Bevere Boone. If I hopefully I pronounced that right, I'm always first time guests. It's always an adventure. Uh, but welcome to the show. Can you just tell people? Uh, a little bit about yourself? Of course. Um, thank you so much for having me, Stephen. Again, my name is Anna Barber Boone. Um, I'm a, that's, that's right. It doesn't look like that, I know. Um, I'm, a, I'm a partner at Michelle and Associates. I've been practicing um, Second Amendment and firearms related law, constitutional law since 2010, um, all with Michelle and Associates. Um, I have had the honor of being part of some of the biggest um, gun-related cases in California um, since my time at the at the firm. And I'm super happy to be here today to, to talk about some of them with you. Yeah, absolutely. And we really, really appreciate you taking some time to join us and walk us through some of these 
things because I think it'll be kind of procedural and a little bit uh, geeky and an insider baseball kind of stuff, but I think it has pretty interesting implications potentially. Um, and, and so the main thing we're going to be talking about here is the fact that the Ninth Circuit did not accept a request to take this case, which has already had lower courts uh, opine on it, uh, to the full panel of the Ninth Circuit, what's called an en banc panel. And I think that has a lot of potential implications for the future of gun litigation in California and the rest of the Ninth Circuit, which is obviously very important because it's a, it's a major area of Second Amendment law in the United States. Um, but first, let's talk a little bit about the background of this case, because I think people maybe forgot about this one a little bit. Um, you know, so it's made a lot of headlines when the law was first passed in California. Um, this dealt with um, sort of advertising of, of guns that in ways that may, quote, appeal to minors. Um, and at the time that this passed, it created a whole lot of confusion within the state, right? Especially among uh, youth shooting organizations. So there's obviously, even in California, uh, it's a very large state with a lot of people and a lot of gun owners. Um, and a lot of them have children who like to participate in the shooting sports, things like clay shooting, um, especially as is a very popular uh, pastime in lots of parts of the country, but also in California. And there's been a, a number of very elite Olympic shooters who've come out of the state. I believe Kim Rohde is from uh, California, if I'm recalling correctly, who's one of the great, most accomplished Olympians in American history, in fact. But, um, you know, the, the way this law was written, yeah, I know that it caused, we did a, a, a bunch of reporting on this time, it caused a lot of those shooting leagues that exist in California to shut down. It it really handicapped a lot of the up and coming shooters, the younger shooters, uh, including a 16 year old at the time that we interviewed and profiled, named uh, Lola Fitzgerald, who was uh, you know one of the top sh youth shooters in the state, and she had trouble even participating in the sport once this law went into effect. Can, uh, and then you guys sued over it, right? Um, or the a collection of gun rights groups that you represent sued over, it, like the California Rifle and Pistol Association. That you guys do a lot of work with. Um, and a number of other groups. What What's happened since this first wave of, of attention and news where, you know, these shooting sport, sports leagues were impacted and shut down, magazines and, and gun stores and, and all this other stuff was impacted. What, what happened after that? Well, um, you're right. So when it was, when the law was passed, it was called AB, Assembly Bill 2571. And it was initially a really broad sweeping, um, I think, intentionally vague bill that barred what they called, quote unquote, designed, intended or reasonably appears to be attractive to minors. And now and it had a list of characteristics that make something reasonably attractive to minors. Um, but of course, that list was not exhaustive. It was things like using uh, plush animals to promote um, firearms sales or firearms organizations um, using children, minors under 18 in advertisements um, or images, using colors or sizes or characters that would be attractive to, to youth, um, <clears throat> excuse me, without any limitation that those things might also be equally attractive to adults. And so what that initially did, which as you mentioned, was it threw um, shoot youth shooting organizations, um, all sh youth 
youth-oriented magazines, even some magazines that were targeted to adults that might have ads with youth in them, like a young person hunting with their father, for instance, um, which is an image you see a lot. Um, you know, in, in even grown-up magazines, those would have, that would have counted too. So there was a lot of concern and it was passed as an urgency bill. So it took effect the day that Gavin Newsom signed it. It was immediate. And so junior shooting organizations, including um, our clients, uh, the California Youth Shooting Sports Association and others, immediately put put the brakes on the events that they were hosting, um, competitive shooting events, uh, outdoor youth days where their sponsors um, are local shooting sports, you know, shooting goods, uh, sporting goods stores, um, th those sorts of like outdoor, get it outside and enjoy the outdoors events got canceled throughout 2021, excuse me, uh, 2022, I'm sorry. And then, um, and then, then, you know, some of these organizations, a lot of the sporting organizations worked with um, some politicians in Sacramento to say, look, this is this is completely broad. It's not just touching commercial speech, um, and it's affecting our ability to have um, shooting competitive shooting events for youth. Um, and right, so, right, yes. so there was a backlash to this because the initial selling point for this legislation from Governor Newsom uh, was a, a kind of a troll campaign <laughs> from a single company. Essentially, yeah. uh, we won tactical. They they made a twenty two long rifle um, for that was designed for children, designed to have the appearance of an AR-15. They called it the JR-15. Right. And uh, they used um, marketing that included, you know, skull and crossbones with a pacifier. And this outraged the, the governor and, um, and led to this legislation, which seems to be sort of intended to d address, I guess, that concern that he had over this particular company which did eventually change its marketing uh, right. but but obviously the backlash is that this had a much wider effect in in practice yeah. than some sort of messaging bill over a single company's advertising right and and i think that you know perhaps for certain folks who who were who were taken aback by that particular advertising campaign this bill was was reasonable to them but i think that there perhaps was some broader goal that certain, you know, California politicians perhaps, you know, saw this as an opportunity because that advertisement itself, while, you know, you can have your feelings about it, whatever they are, good or bad or indifferent, um, it was obviously a ploy to, to get at a broader thing that we're seeing in California, which is um, a lot of laws that are aimed at tamping down on gun culture generally. I also do a lot of lawsuits with regard to banning gun shows throughout California on state-owned property. And so, as we know, yes, that's a place where guns are, um, gun transactions are begun in California, ammo sales happen, but a huge portion of that is just coming together and celebrating gun culture. And so it's something broader that we're seeing and that that ad was just something that Newsom was able to use to, to start this. And so, yes, we ended up with this huge backlash. They tried to pass an amendment to the law and they they passed it rather quickly um, in response to our, in response to our junior sports magazine's lawsuit. Um, and they did some things to try and narrow the law a bit to make it so that 
these sorts of youth outdoors days weren't being impacted, uh, that competitive shooting events could still happen, that you could have fundraising dinners where, you know, youth guns might be um, advertised or sold or raffled or sponsored. And they tried to do that. And I think that the lawsuit does show, you know, the, the outcome of the lawsuit does show that they were at least sort of, um, and the state was at least sort of successful in narrowing it to only that type of commercial speech because it became, the, with the amendments, it became that it wasn't just, you know, all sorts of program messaging that might be enticing to youth, um, but only when the primary purpose of that messaging was um, to sell a product that was, and it's not just firearms, it's firearms, ammunition, and firearm related products. And that is defined very broadly to include almost anything that one would use while shooting. So mm -hmm. it's, um, so they were sort of successful in narrowing it. Um, yeah. So, th so they passed this uh, sort of, a, well, the, the legislation was passed on an emergency basis and then they would kind of went back on an emergency basis and tried right fix some of these issues and and it does seem to have had like you said some success there a lot of these shooting leagues are now back operating right right, That's um, right. so yeah i guess the question then is why is why did this lawsuit continue what why did you guys why weren't you satisfied with those changes that is such a good question and i think the answer is kind of twofold first um i think more broad i mean First, as I keep saying, it was I think it was only marginally successful in really limiting it to that type of commercial speech, because, um, you know, as as a, an attorney who rec um, who represents organizations like California Rifle and Pistol Association and other organizations that do these sorts of um, youth youth outdoors days, sporting events um, and even competitive sporting events, those types of events as you know, just like any event, you know, festival or event like that, it has sponsors. And who are the number one sponsors of these sorts of events? They're going to be the, the manufacturers, makers, and retailers of firearms, ammunition, and any firearm-related products as the law was defined. So in, in our view, my theory is that the law still impacts the ability um, of of these organiza nonprofit organizations um, to host these sorts of events for youth and families um, where youth are trying their hand at shooting and other recreational activities and for the higher level competitors um, to, to, to wear the, the sponsor of their, you know, uh, you know, an, an Olympic shooter might have a sponsor, right? And she, he or she would not be able to wear their, their, their logos, right? Because they are firearm related you know, uh, firearm related corporations that are trying to sell a product through that person. Also those events, again, they're highly sponsored by those sorts of things, which so still shuts down that speech to, to adults and to youth. But the other thing is that even if we're only looking at the commercial speech aspect and the ability of firearms, um, firearm related industry members, I call them firearms industry members in the, in the bill, um, the ability of firearms industry members, and that includes non pro gun nonprofits, right? Who have a pro gun message, they are included in this law. It still muzzles them from making speech that um, is what do they call it? Designed, intended, or reasonably appears to be attractive to minors. The law was purposefully and intentionally extremely broad on what that means, and. There's no way to tell. I mean, no reasonable person can look and be like, well, that isn't also just as much or more likely to be attractive to an adult human person 
Additionally, in California still, minors can legally use firearms. So there's this speech, this speech, the ability to communicate to both minors and their parents who may choose to have, you know, to allow them to shoot. That's that speech, educating them about what's on the market, what are safer for children and younger, smaller people to use. That information needs to be able to get to them. And the bill, even if we're only talking about the marketing speech, shuts that speech down that and it prevents both uh, it prevents adults from getting information that they need to buy and make good decisions about the firearm related products they want for their children and it also affects older children's ability they're going to become mate of you know um, adults soon and they're going to have a full second amendment right to access those things and they should be able to get the information educational information about what's on the market so that's right. why we continue the lawsuit. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And, you know, obviously you've seen, um, at least in public, I, I'm not as sure about what they've argued in, in court, but there's been a lot of comparison here with, you know, tobacco regulation, tobacco right. company regulations, things like, uh, you know, uh, what is it, Joe the Camel from cigarette sales right. being banned. I, I think that's how they would counter these arguments of, uh, that you know they, they don't want something like that to occur with firearms um and i guess they would use that the skull and crossbones and pacifier imagery from from me one tactical as an example right. uh, you know how, how have you guys dealt with that argument um that's a really good question and there there are there there are several there is a line of commercial speech cases going up to the supreme court dealing with um marketing of tobacco, marketing of alcohol, marketing marketing of cannabis um, that is purportedly to prevent those sorts of messages from getting to youth um, be, um, and in, encouraging youth smoking or youth drinking. I think there's also some um, gambling. Get, there's restrictions on gambling marketing that's similar. Um, but at the end of the day, those cases a lot of times come down on the side of more speech, not less, right? When when dealing with a commercial speech restriction, the court first has to decide if the speech that they're looking at is, that is being targeted is lawful and truth, uh, truthful and promoting lawful activities. So a lot of times, if you have a direct marketing campaign for tobacco, Right. And you're and you're suggesting that youth can go out and purchase tobacco, then that's not lawful. That's not lawful activity that it's promoting. And so they can tamp down on that. Um, and and when they do that, but even when they do, if it if the language is even if they're. So even if they're going after something when they are going after speech that is lawful and truthful, they still have to do restrictions that are narrowly tailored under intermediate scrutiny, right? So it's not just, oh, Joe Camel is attractive to minors and we can get that, we can get rid of that just because we're afraid that's going to be attractive to minors and they're going to want to smoke. Like it still has to be narrowly tailored. So when, when the court was looking at AB 2571, it noticed that, yeah, what, what the promotion is here, it, even in California, again, I'll say it, shooting, possession of firearms, under you know the under appropriate circumstances is legal for minors in California. So even if they were saying kids go out and go out and shoot, learn to hunt, this is you know this is good for your you know you learn to shoot in self defense, these sorts of things, that's illegal. That's legal 
messaging, okay? And so the state had to pass a bill that was narrowly tailored for its purported interests. The interests that they were purporting to, that the state was purporting to serve through AB 2571 was um, in preventing um, well, the, the legislative history talks kind of broadly about youth shooters, right, um, harming other people and um, illegally getting firearms um, as minors. And um, the state's kind of theory is that, well, any advertising is going to make them want them. It's going to drive up the, the market for firearms among minors. And there's going to be all these illegal sales. Well, the court found, the Ninth Circuit found, panel found, 3-0 on a unanimous decision that they hadn't put forth anything that showed that there was actually a problem in California of minors acquiring firearms illegally, purchased them through FFLs, um, let alone that it was an advertisement from junior sports magazines that made them do it, um, as opposed to some other um, some other thing that glorified them. And I think Judge Van Dyke talks about video games, for instance, um, those kinds of things. Right. Yeah, yeah. And, and so skipping ahead there to the outcome of this case so far on the uh, on uh, preliminary injunction, right, that you were able to obtain from this three-judge panel on the Ninth Circuit. Or we will be able just, to. Right. Well, can you explain that a little bit? Of what course. Exactly? Of course. So in this case, um, we were unfortunately unsuccessful in the district court in getting the motion for preliminary injunction granted. It was fully denied. Um, and so when we went up to the Ninth Circuit, the three-judge panel um, unanimously reversed that decision and orders the case to go back down um, with instructions that the court now rule in line with their decision. So we don't right. currently have a preliminary injunction in place, and we didn't then when the case went up on appeal, but we very soon should once we go back down to the district court. Right. And, and the procedural part that we're really interested in uh, with, with all of this, because I think it's good to understand the background where this case is at. But the, after that three judge panel ruled, before it was sent, before it's going to be sent back down to the district court to change their ruling uh, to match the panel, the state of California appealed this decision or tried to ask for a uh, an en banc review, a, a review that would be uh, I think it's what, 15 judges out of the 29 on the court. Um, sit. Is that, is it, it 11? goes to a larger panel. <laughs> yeah. It's a much larger panel than three. It's not, it's the, they call it the full, full panel or en banc panel, but it's not all 29 judges. It's, it's just a larger panel. That's sort of right. the final say. My understanding is, and please correct me if you, if I'm wrong here, that en banc review is the final step that you could take at the appellate level in a given circuit. And so this would be, you know, they lost at the, the three judge panel, this, the state of California, you guys won. Um, mm -hmm. And so now they're trying to go to the next step above that. And the outcome of that request was no. Um, Correct. And not just no, but, but nobody voted to take up this case as far as I understand it. Can you explain that? Okay. So the en banc process in the ninth circuit is a little different. Um, the en banc process and other smaller circuits would be heard by the full court, right? And in California, because it is so large, I mean, in the Ninth Circuit, because it is so large, there is a smaller one, a uh, smaller panel of the full 29. Um, what happened in this case, after the decision, the three-judge panel decision came down in September, the state 
requested some more time to fi file its um, petition for either rehearing by the three-judge panel or rehearing by the full, the full court on banc. Um, excuse me, it's, that's kind of just like a procedural thing. You can ask the same three-judge panel to reconsider what it just decided for certain reasons, um, and you ask for both. Um, this three-judge panel who unanimously decided in favor of plaintiffs in our case, um, obviously wasn't going to rehear that um, itself. So um, that those three judges ruled against rehearing by the three-judge panel. And then after that, excuse me, um, they inform they inform the rest of the Ninth Circuit that they've made that decision and they decide and they tell them this is our advisement. Um, we think that on bunk shouldn't happen in this case for whatever reason. Um, and in what and a lot and so what you see a lot of cases, especially Second Amendment related cases or gun related cases, is there will be a call for a vote, then all the judges have to then have, I think they have something like 14 days to submit their vote on whether to take it on bonk. Obviously, if they vote, if the majority says yes, then it's going to go on bonk. If not, it doesn't. In this case, according to the ruling, uh, the, according to the decision from the three judge panel denying the on bonk review, there wasn't even a call for a vote. So there was no judge apparently um, sitting on the on the Ninth Circuit active today, yesterday, um, that thought that um, that they should be that they, that they were even interested, that they knew they weren't going to get the um, majority they needed. Yeah, which uh, obviously that's a lot for people to pay, take in there. But I think the ultimate point here yeah. is that the, that was the last resort for outside of the Supreme Court itself for California to try and get a different ruling in this case. In the Ninth, and yes. right uh, now they could, uh, I assume they could appeal to the Supreme Court if they wanted to. Um, I, that seems unlikely to happen. Yes, they could. Uh, but, they could file a cert petition. Um, I, we haven't heard either yet, either way. We're kind of just in a in a holding pattern for that. Um, sure. The case but gets. The, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just saying, like the reason this all matters, because uh, I know it's very complex legalese about you know procedure and maneuvering, is that uh, traditionally in the Ninth Circuit, it, it it's been the case where if the government especially California, honestly, loses on one of their gun laws um, that the, uh, in a panel, right, the three-judge panel, they will often request, or even sometimes a judge, I know the judges can also request review, uh, and that sometimes happens as well, and they end up at the full core, the full panel of the court, and uh, since Heller, at least, I think there's been pretty much unanimous um, where the en banc panel has ruled to uphold the, the gun restriction. Right. Um, and, and so that's been a pretty major impediment to what you guys are trying to do with legal activism on the pro-gun side in California mm -hmm. over the last 15 years or so. Yeah. Right. And so that that's where, you know, this is not... This is not necessarily like a major, it's not Bruin, it's not Heller, uh, but it, it seems like it could potentially be significant if it signals perhaps a change in what the Ninth Circuit does with gun-related cases. Now, there are some caveats here, right, yeah. uh, on this point. Uh, one, probably the biggest one, is that this, while it's a gun case, I think you alluded to this earlier, it's not a Second Amendment case, it's a First Amendment case. That's that right. That deals with you know, commercial speech. And so um, 
but I'm interested in your feeling as the 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 top litigator in this case. Do you think it's significant that the Ninth Circuit decided not to go on bonk in this particular case? And uh, you know, if so, you know, I just want to hear more of your thoughts on it. Where do you think it's headed? There's a lot to unpack there, and I, I thank you for the question. A few things. You're, you're, you're definitely correct. Since Heller, there's been very little change in, in the Ninth Circuit of, case of, of gun-related laws being struck down. Um, and every time that a three-judge panel, panel did strike down a law, it went on bonk with the exception of one case, I believe, um, and it was the Duncan Large Capacity Magazine case, but only when it was on motion for preliminary injunction and the state opposed on bonk review that time. So it's, yes, you're 100% correct. Judge Van Dyke and other dissenters talk about it regularly, about how no pro-gun decision gets upheld in Cal- in, in the Ninth Circuit. It goes on bonk and promptly overturned. Right. Um, and, so, and so, yeah, and so just to put a point on that, because uh, you mentioned Duncan, but you said that the state opposed it in that circumstance. Mm-hmm. So every time the government has wanted there to be an en banc review of a gun-related holding among a Ninth Circuit panel. They have gotten it, and a good point. The, the lower panel has been reversed, right? That's right. That's actually a really good point, because you're right. Duncan, oppo- I mean, that you had mentioned a little earlier that, yeah, the judges themselves can ask, um, it's called sua sponte, make a request that the court, the parties decide brief whether it should go on bonk. The parties don't have to ask for it themselves. And that's what happened in the Duncan motion for preliminary injunction appeal. The court said, hey, parties, let us know what you think. And the, and the state was like, we're moving forward below. It'd be a waste of everyone's resources. Like, let's just wait till we get a final judgment. Um, and that was the that was the one time, you know, prior to Bruin that, um, that a pro-gun decision didn't go um, on bonk in Ninth Circuit. So, What's ha- what I think about this case, and I think the importance of of it being declined. Uh, there's a few things. You you make the r- correct point that this is a First Amendment case, and so I think your normal lines of um, the normal lines that are drawn in a Second Amendment, like a direct Second and Fourteenth Amendment case for gun laws, um, they're not the same. Um, I think that there are a lot more um, Democrat president appointed judges in the federal bench that that this the first amendment is is sacrosanct and they're not going even for in a gun related case they're not going to they're not going to um they're not going to offend um first amendment precedent and so that's part, a big part of it another part of it of course being that this is a preliminary injunction but i think i think still I think that it does give us some hope for where the court is now leaning with regard to the makeup of the court and what is going to happen with gun-related and even Second Amendment decisions moving forward. Um, I know that in the last, let's say, eight years, there has been a shift in um, there has been a shift in the makeup of the Ninth Circuit, and you might start to see, um, you know, you might start to see. Some, less and less. Um, and also Bruin was a huge decision and it could have changed the way that some, you know, judges, even who may have, who might have upheld a gun control law, um, under intermediate scrutiny and other tiers of scrutiny analysis, um, with the, with the Bruin analysis being what is very clearly what they have to follow now, they may not, you know, there may be some court judges, even on the ninth circuit that 
think it's a bridge too far to take a case on bonk when the, when the Second Amendment historical traditional analysis was correct. Um, I'm hopeful as someone who practices in this area almost entirely, um, but I'm also not completely dumb. <laughs> like we, there is still, I mean, obviously in this circuit, there is still a lot of anti-gun sentiment. And I think a lot of um, procedural things do happen um, that can put a case, a second amendment case uh, on bonk when maybe it, maybe um, in another, in another context, a first amendment or um, other, other constitutional right, it may not. So. Yeah. Do you, do you think that uh, perhaps to use um, an apt analogy here, they're they're kind of keeping their powder dry in some of these situations, <laughs> maybe moving forward, where they're not going to take every single gun related case on bunk if just because the government lost at the lower level. Um, maybe they're going to be more selective. I mean, also, you know, the Bruin kind of uh, opened the floodgates to a certain degree on these kinds of cases, um, right? And getting more favorable rulings in the lower courts. Uh, with the, with the standard change that it implemented that you just described. So, you know, how many cases can they realistically take up anyway? You know, that, that right. maybe that's another consideration. And there has been, um, there have been some very high profile dissenting decisions written. Um, you know, I'm also, we counsel in the Duncan magazine case. And, um, and I think perhaps a lot of your listeners are, might be familiar with the crazy, long twisted procedural path that case has taken. And, and it's going to be heard on bonk again, um, next month by the same panel that heard it before. And there was a, there were some very vocal dissents, um, to the court doing that, taking that very, very unique procedural step um, to do that. Um, and, you know, Judge Van Dyke and others spoke very loudly about what went on behind the scenes to get Duncan there, um, both the first time it went on bonk and now the second time that it's gone on bonk and um, and have, have spilled some ink or some tea, I guess, explaining that, you know, what they're doing behind the scenes is, is very politically motivated. And this isn't something you see in other contexts and other rights contexts specifically. Um, and very much calling out repeatedly the court, the Ninth Circuit for, um, for never allowing a positive second amendment decision to, to stand. And, and I don't know if the court feels like, well, they have to make sure they're not taking every single case now because, you know, for the, for legitimacy's sake, I would hope that they would think that, um, you know, I'm, I'm so very idealistic about the, our, our court system and the judges, even if we don't see eye on the decisions, I do think that they're there to uphold it and to make sure that our court system is legitimate. And so right. that might have something to do with it. Um, and yeah, as you said, it's going to be a lot more debate. cases. The internal debate might be having an effect. Do you think? I think so. I think so. Mm, that's interesting. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, I guess we'll have to see because it's it's one of those things where you just don't see this happen very often, at least in gun related cases where they don't go on bunk if the government requests it. And uh, that's right. Uh, so I think it's noteworthy enough that we I wanted to have you on to to go through it because you're directly <laughs> in the case, so uh, you're going to know better than anybody else. Um, uh, about what's perhaps happening there. And yeah, and yeah, I mean, well, obviously it's one of those things where we just have to see if it becomes a trend or if this was just a isolated incident, maybe right. because it's more related to the first amendment than the second amendment. We don't know, but I think it's definitely worth 
exploring. And so I really appreciate you coming on of course. to do that with us and give us your insight uh, on the matter. And um, yeah, so if, if people want to continue to follow the case, they want to follow your other work, uh, yes. how can they do that? Um, we put all of our information out, um, through the California Rifle and Pistol Association, who is a named plaintiff in this case. Um, you can follow Costas Moros on, um, on X. He does a lot of tweeting about, uh, posting about our cases. Does um, a lot of tweeting. But yes, he does. <laughs> um, but definitely, <laughs> definitely you can learn about it there. Um, or michellelawyers.com. We post all of our updates on the website. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We will uh, have to have you back on as as the case moves forward into the, the merits section. I would, be I would be happy to be back. Thank you so much. Yeah. Uh, for now, we're going to head over to our news update. All right. We're back with a news update and we're down a man. <laughs> Jake had to, to get going. <laughs> so it's just me and this is going to be pretty short. Obviously, we've covered a lot already. Uh, it's beginning doing things a little bit differently than normal. So I'm uh, just going to give you a couple of our biggest headlines from the week that weren't about the NRA or the Ninth Circuit situation, because I think we've covered both of those fairly thoroughly. Although I should note, uh, just real quick on the NRA situation, Woody Phillips, the former treasurer, was not found, uh, it was found that his post-employment contract didn't harm the NRA financially. That's what the jury found. But they did find that he was liable for $2 million worth of harm for, you know, failing to carry out his duties in good faith. So uh, it's not just Wayne LaPierre who's going to likely be forced to repay the NRA. And to be clear, that money goes to the NRA, not to the New York uh, Attorney General or anyone like that, uh, because the NRA is the party that was harmed in all of this uh, by, by uh, Phillips and, and LaPierre's actions. So uh that's an important note. I also want to address something real quick from last week's show. Uh, and I think I've mentioned this before when Cam Edwards is on as well. Uh, I have been told that um, <clears throat> that Andrew Rulanundam, who is the current temporary uh, interim executive vice president, the guy who's running uh, the NRA for longtime Wayne LaPierre, uh, right-hand man and, and spokesperson for the NRA, uh, had worked for Ackerman McQueen before he joined the NRA. Uh, I, as far, I've also been told, and I think Cam said this when I brought it up initially as well, I probably should have just uh, left it there, but uh, that that's not true. As far as I understand, and I've reached out to several sources who said that he didn't work for Ackerman directly. So I just wanted to correct that. I don't think it's a major point, but it is something where I don't want to mislead you guys about anything. And I want to be able to come out and tell you whenever I uh, think I've gotten something wrong. I did reach out to the NRA themselves for comment or like just to try and clear this up uh, on the record officially, whether or not um, uh, Andrew ever worked for Ackerman. They didn't respond. But from what I've gathered, talking to former NRA um, uh, staff and insiders, he, he did as far as I no, he did not work at, at Ackerman. So I just wanted to get that on uh, the record for you guys. Uh, it'd be better if the NRA respond, but they don't. They don't respond to a lot of things these days, um, uh, honestly. So, uh, but that doesn't matter. I don't want to. I don't want to leave anything out there that that's not that I can't that I'm not comfortable saying is 100 percent accurate. So, uh, wanted to clean that up real quick. Let's get to some news beyond the NRA and the Ninth Circuit, though. 
Uh, first up is the Supreme Court. We had a new poll from Marquette University, from their law school, that looked at uh, a number of things dealing with the Supreme Court. Uh, but one of them was the Bruin decision, right? The landmark Second Amendment case that was handed down in 2022 that invalidated New York's restrictive gun carry licensing scheme. Uh, it was used to be called a May issue scheme where effectively government officials had a lot of subjective say over who actually got a permit and who didn't. The court found that was unconstitutional, that it violated the Second Amendment, that there is an individual right to uh, carry a gun for self-defense. Um, and of course, they established, a, in addition to that, a, a new standard for judging all Second Amendment cases going forward uh, based on history and tradition of gun regulation in the United States. That decision is, has remained extremely popular. Um, 64% approval in this latest poll. It's technically down three points from the last poll, to be clear, but it's back in line with the first time they did this poll. So th there's been a slight fluctuation, but uh, you, you're seeing its approval for Bruin stick around at uh, nearly two-thirds of Americans. So that's that's fairly significant. Now, I will note, too, there that the actual question only asks about the first part of the ruling, about the individual right to carry a gun for self-defense, a handgun in particular. So, uh, you know, just keep that in mind. It doesn't go into the other half of Bruin, which is much more uh, impactful, likely, you know, uh, the, the new standard that it sets. So, uh, that's something to keep in mind, but it does also show the popularity of the ruling compared to the popularity of the court. The court is actually underwater, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, underwater among Americans. It's only at 40% approval, almost a total reversal from four years ago when, when they asked that question. And you can see it if you look through their, their polling over time, just flip, uh, probably around in part, uh, the Dobbs ruling, which was also polled. This is the landmark. Uh, abortion ruling that overturned Roe v. Wade that has been very unpopular in comparison to Bruin, uh, where Dobbs only has about a 30% approval rating. So uh, interesting poll. It's uh, something that we've reported on in the past and, and that we'll try to keep up with because it's good to know Americans' perceptions of these, these big uh, rulings, especially ones related to the Second Amendment. And uh, thus far, uh, it seems that they've been very supportive of what the court has done uh, in brewing. So that, that's, that's pretty interesting. Um, of course, the next case, the next uh, story we have, actually the next two stories we have both deal with, uh, unfinished gun parts and homemade firearms or, uh, what opponents will call ghost guns. Um, and the first one deals with a lawsuit out of Baltimore, Maryland, where polymer 80, which is one of the largest manufacturers of unfinished firearms frames and especially kits that uh, help people finish those parts and build them into functioning firearms. Uh, they have settled with the city for uh, $1.2 million. And they've also agreed not to sell their products into the state of Maryland anymore, uh, which does have a ban on the uh, unfinished parts uh, as well. But this is actually the latest in a series of cases where Polymer 80 has uh, agreed to settle and agreed not to sell their unfinished frames and, and uh, receivers and kits anymore in the affected location. So that, that's a pretty interesting outcome for sure. 
and one where Polymer 80 doesn't seem to be, uh, it seems to be favoring settlements at this point in these cases instead of uh, continuing to fight them. Uh, now, I think their business is also kind of transitioned a bit towards uh, actual fully functional finished firearms that they sell now. So uh, that may be part of the reason here, but uh, it's certainly interesting and uh, uh, very relevant for the continuing fight over homemade guns. Uh, in addition to that story, the second one also relevant to that fight. And that comes out of another city very close by, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, uh, just up 95 from Baltimore. They had passed their own local ban on the possession of unfinished gun parts or unserialized firearms. Um, and so they have, as has happened many times in the past with Philadelphia, they were sued under the state's preemption law in Pennsylvania, like in 40 other states, the Commonwealth, in this case, has final say over firearms regulations. So localities cannot make their own firearms regulations. And Philadelphia has tried this many, many times in the past and has consistently lost in court on that question. Uh, and they are actually currently in a uh, case at the Pennsylvania State Supreme Court over uh, this basic issue of this preemption law. Uh, they haven't, we haven't gotten a ruling in that case yet, but we did get one on the city's uh, so-called ghost gun ban, which a lower court in still a state court, but an appeals court uh, issued a 4-3 ruling in favor of Philadelphia, uh, determining that essentially its ghost gun ban did not actually re regulate firearms or ammunition because it regulated unfinished parts, which are technically not firearms, um, which is sort of the core of the whole fight over this, these, these uh, kits and, and parts is that they're, because they're not finished, they don't qualify as firearms under most laws, federal and state. Therefore, they don't come along with the same sort of regulations that are attached to um, finished firearms that are sold at, you know, for instance, a gun store or a gun show. Um, and so they don't need background checks to purchase or things like that. And so, uh, but uh, on the other hand of that, uh, Pennsylvania, at least, uh, one court there has now determined, an appeals court has now determined that they also regulations of them don't fall under the state's firearms preemption law. So regulating unfinished parts is not the same as regulating firearms. That was the determination. So uh, interesting case, interesting ruling, interesting dissents as well, but uh, potential, potentially pretty big implications for that, especially in other states that have those same sort of preemption laws, which is again, most of them, the vast majority of them. So, um, yeah, well, we will continue to follow that for sure on how it goes. Um, and if other, other state, other cities start to follow the lead of Philadelphia on that point, or if this case makes it up to the state Supreme Court and perhaps they rule differently, we'll, we will obviously be following all of that here at the reload, which is why you should, of course, head over and sign up for our free newsletter today if you don't already have a subscription. And if you want, you can go ahead and buy a membership, which helps support our reporting. It is how we fund what we do. Uh, it is the core way we support our independent and informed journalism that comes from a sober, serious perspective. And, uh, you know, I, I would hope that you would consider supporting us today. And of course, 
you get real value for that for those dollars that you spend i think like i i believe in in absolutely providing value when we ask people to pay for a membership so you get access to hundreds of pieces of member exclusive content stories and analysis pieces that you cannot find anywhere else um, it's great if you like to read the stories and then want to know a little bit more about them from somebody who's well informed on both the politics of the topic and the guns, which is something, frankly, that is uh, not very common in media. You usually get one or the other. Ma major outlets are might be pretty good at the, the politics, or at least, especially on the Hill, you know, in DC, but they don't know anything about guns most of the time. And gun publications know a lot about firearms. They could tell you the muzzle velocity of any caliber out of any barrel, perhaps, but they often don't know the politics very well. So we try to fill that gap in between and bring both of those things together. And um, I think we provide a lot of value in doing that. And of course, beyond the pieces, the analysis pieces you get access to, you also get this podcast a day early and the opportunity to appear on the show in a member segment. So if you're interested in that, you can head over to reload.com and and pick up a membership today. We'd love to have you. But that's all we've got for this week. Um, we will see you guys again real soon.